you have your Bible, you can turn to Psalms chapter 139. If you don't have a Bible this morning, there's some in the seat, uh, the seats underneath you or in front of you. We're also going to put the verses on the screen so you can follow along with us. This is week nine for us in a series called A Warrior's Songbook. And uh, I have thoroughly enjoyed walking through the Psalms. Uh, sadly, it's our, our last Sunday uh, in this series. Um, next week, we begin a series in Ephesians chapter 1 and 2 called You Belong Here. Uh, but this morning, if we were going to, to put an exclamation point on this series, Psalms 139, Spurgeon said that this is probably one of the tallest peaks in all the Psalms. And so when you begin thinking about uh, what we're, we're looking at, this passage, many of the verses will be very familiar to you because uh, they've been pulled out of this chapter and we put them on posters and billboards all over uh, the city um, just to, uh, to remind us of certain things um, as, as Christians. But the title of this morning's message is, Your God is Too Small. Your God is Too Small. When you begin to think about it, the vast majority of what we know about God, we developed while we were children. The, the idea that he, He's big and He created everything. And as we have grown older and, uh, and the world has become more complex, you know, when you're a kid, you're just hoping you don't get you know, beat up in the sandbox. When you're an adult, like you've you got to get a job and take care of a family, right? So like, the problems just get bigger as you get older. And as we've grown and as we grow up, our view of God often is stifled to the same view of God that we had when we were children. That our view of God often is fails in its growth as we grow as adults. When you begin thinking about a lot of people when become disheartened or discouraged or disillusioned, not because God has failed, but as our problems have grown, our view of God has not. And in Psalms 139, David is, is going to help us get God outside of our little box and place him back into a view or a picture of all of his majesty and all of his power. I'm going to read some statements, and I want you to think about this. Currently, your view of God, if you were to write God a job description, what would it look like? If your God says, don't take a risk and play it safe, then, then your God is too small he says, make my life comfortable, then, then he's too small. If he operates on your timetable, then your God is too small. If he only says, come to me, and he never says, go to them, then your God is too small. If he never wrecks your schedule or messes with your plan, then, then he's too small. If he never asks for something you didn't budget for, then God is too small. If your God never fills your eyes with tears or he never takes your breath away because of his power, if he never stuns you with something too great for you, if he always agrees for you, votes like you, and thinks like you, then your God is too small. If he says that you are too old or too young, if you are too poor, too rich, if you are too guilty or you are too good, then your God is too small. If your God is okay with spending one hour a week with you, then he's too small. If your God says, I just want to be happy and stop working on your marriage and stop striving to, in the spiritual disciplines, then your God is too small. If he fits neatly into this little box that you can control like you know, the puppeteer and, and moving the puppets on the string, then your God is too small. In Psalms 139, David takes four stanzas. The very first three stanzas, all of them six verses, the very first uh, three stanzas, he describes who God is. And the very last stanza, he describes himself and man. And here's what we're going to get as we walk through Psalms 139, that our view of God will always determine our view of self. That our view of God will always determine our view of self. So if you look at Psalms 139, John Calvin made this statement. He said, nearly all the wisdom we possess 
That is to say, true and sound wisdom consists of two parts. First, the knowledge of God, and secondly, the knowledge of ourself. In Psalms 139, verse 1, it says this. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all of my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain it. The very first thing we're going to look at is, is our view or my view of God. There are three aspects to this. And the very first stanza, we see that his knowledge is infinite. That his knowledge is infinite. That God knows every aspect of our character. Every character flaw that we try to hide, God already knows. Spurgeon said, there was never a time in which we were unknown to God. And there will never be a moment in which we shall be beyond his observation. God never says, wow, I didn't see that coming. It caught me off guard. <clears throat> to think about this. There's, there's no sin issue in our heart that God is not aware of. There's nothing, we can't hide something to a place that, that God doesn't already know it. The second thing we, we see about his knowledge is that he knows our conduct. There's nothing that I do that I can hide from the Lord. He knows the conversations I have. He knows the actions I take. He knows when I steal. He knows when I, I take and I participate in things I should not have. I know that are wrong. There's sin. So he knows my conduct. Look at verse 4. He knows my contemplation. You get this. Before we formulate the words on our tongue, they're just ideas popping around in our head. God is already aware of everything that's circulating in our brain right now. He's aware of every thought before we don't even have to speak it. Like we, we get those people like their their verbal clutch has run out. You know what I'm talking about? Like <laughs> we know what's going on in their head. But like for those of you who still have the clutch, like God, God's aware. You don't even have to say it. He's aware of your anger. He's aware of your grief. He's aware of your pain. He's aware of the chaos. And you think about that his knowledge is infinite. What David is reminding us is that, that literally there is nothing that is unknowable to God. He, he knows all things, specifically everything going on inside of you, everything going on around you, everything about you. That his knowledge is infinite. That God is omniscient. He's too wonderful. He's beyond our wildest imagination. And, and here's what David's saying is that God's knowledge of me is infinitely greater than my understanding of me. That God's knowledge of me, what he knows about me, is far greater than anything I will ever understand about myself. The second stanza, if you look at this in verse 7, it says, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to the heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as the light with you. The second thing we see not only is that his, his wisdom, his knowledge is infinite, but that his presence is inescapable. 
you know, O.J. Simpson just you know, made, made parole and just kind of looking back at some of those courtroom scenes and, you know, O.J.'s O.J. But if you remember that, that iconic scene when Nicole Brown Simpson's mother is in the courtroom and she just cries out, where are you, God? Where, where are you? Let's be real. There are times in each of our lives where we sit, and oftentimes it's, we can have people all around us, and we feel like the loneliest person in the world because nothing is making sense. And we just, we, we may not even know how to utter it. We may not even know who to utter it to, but we are like, where are you? If you are so loving, if you are so great, if you are so kind, where are you? And in this passage, we see that David is is reminding himself. It's something that Jeremiah would write in chapter 23. He says, can a man hide himself in a secret place so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not feel the heaven and the earth, declares the Lord? Thinking that, that in every place we go, in every circumstance, the, the boardroom tomorrow, your boss's office, sitting in the warehouse, sitting uh, in your job, sitting at home with your children, in your bedroom tonight, in the darkness of the, just the inward bowels of yourself, just trying to make sense of everything, the Lord is there. That nowhere we can run. Earlier this year, we looked at Jonah. Jonah literally physically tries to run from God. And everywhere he goes, God is already there. He comes to this conclusion, no matter how far I run, no matter what I try, I cannot get away from him. Oftentimes, and, and it's a cultural thing, it's nothing necessarily wrong with it in its right context, but oftentimes we see that God probably, uh, maybe a little bigger than this, but God lives in a building like this in heaven. In Acts, Paul speaking, he says, the God who made the world, And everything in it, being the Lord in heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by human hands because God is here right now with us. He's with you when you leave today. So these aspects that death, we see in uh, verse 7 and 8, that death cannot hide me from God. If you die without Jesus, you will wake up in judgment. If you die with Jesus, you will wake up in him. That death at this moment cannot separate you from the presence of God. That, secondly, that distance cannot hide me from God. You look at verse 9 and 10. He says, if I, if I ascend to the heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, if I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. The third part that he mentions in this text is that that darkness cannot hide you from God. There is no such thing as a God-forsaken place or person. No, No such thing that doesn't exist. That place, that person doesn't exist. There are people who have forsaken God, but you have never seen throughout Scripture, throughout history, a person that God has forsaken. Because we cannot escape His presence. The darkest valley the stupidest decision, the the crux of your life. God is there. And David, and you think about, we've kind of walked through these psalms. Most of the psalms are not David on the high mountain just worshiping the Lord. They're David in the valley running from his life because his son is after him, because uh, the kingdom is falling apart, because an enemy is coming in. He's writing these things in Psalms 139. He is just recounting all the goodness of God. The third thing that we see in Psalms 139 is uh, not only that his knowledge is infinite, 
and that his presence is inescapable, but that his power is intimate, that his power is intimate. If you look at verse 13, for you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven into the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. And in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, there are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. You, you probably heard some of these, verse 13 in particular. It's kind of like the pro-life anthem of the world. You, you think about, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful of your works. My soul knows it very well. The thing about this, God's power shapes us in creation. That word for there ties his omniscience, all right? His omnipresence, that he's everywhere. And this idea that God is, is all-powerful, he's all-knowing, that we cannot escape him, that in that aspect that his power is very infinite, literally that, that idea that woven together, if any of you have ever knitted in here, or you've sewn something, it's the same word to take, take the thread and to, to weave it together. Nothing but this. I, I'm looking across the room. There's some people who have some similarities in here. Like, we got some people who have no hair, some people who have gray hair. But there's no, no person in here who is exactly like another. And God took the power that he spoke into creation, and he wove it into creating and forming you. Think about that. He didn't just hold off and just say, hey, I'm going to give him just a little 10% of my power in creation. He took everything, and he said, I'm going to create and fashion you. I'm going to weave you together. Literally, I'm going to tie your your bones together with ligaments and tendons. I'm going to put your muscles into place. I'm going to make your organs pump, make them function, lungs breathe in and out. That God's power is seen in him creating and forming us. And what David is declaring here is that I was made by the creator of the universe and he held nothing back in his power in creating me. He made it intimate. This past week, I was, uh, or two weeks ago, I was in the Natural History Museum uh, in London, and there's a, an exhibit there about the life stage uh, of an embryo. Uh, not the kind of place you want to take like your eight-year-old unless you want to have that conversation. But you, you walk in here, and they, they literally have the picture of a real embryo from week one, like moment of conception, to week one, two, three, four, five. I go to week five. Everything's life-size. And I put my thumb... The embryo is literally the size of my thumb. And it begins to see, it said, and it, you take a little arrow and you point, there are arms budding out. And, and you, you follow this week five, we, we know there's, there's heartbeat. Like 18, we, we keep following this, we, we keep tracking day in, week out. Like God, so small and so minute, the size of my thumb, and yet there are there are arms shaping. There are organs starting to take shape. Like, I, I don't know about you, but like, 
I barely can keep a coloring book in the lines. And God took everything he had, all of his power, and he wove you together with it. It's why in this room, some of you have are skilled mathematicians. Some of you are incredible mothers. Some of you know your way around machinery, and others of you know how to farm. It's why some of you are tall and some of you are short. It's why some of you didn't get any of the looks and somebody else in your family did. Because not, not because of fate or luck or chance, but God, out of his design and out of his pleasure and out of his intention, created you and formed you. If you notice what he says, he forms all of your days. He before there was ever one of them, he formed them and he laid them out. He created you for him and for his purpose and how he created you. He set a purpose into every single one of your days and he made you just for that purpose. I want you to think about that. No one, no one in here has to be, man, I, I don't, I, I'm not sure if I'm good at anything. Of course you are. God created you, the creator of the universe fashioned and wove you together for his purpose. He, he created you with a divine purpose that every single one of your days would have eternity written into them, that there would be value into everything that you would do. As long as you would walk in him and to walk in his purpose, then you would live them out and enjoy the beauty of it. So we see not only that God's power shapes us in creation, but verse 16 through 18, God's power shapes our lives and our future. Lottie Moon made this statement. She said, we are immortal until our work on earth is finished. We are immortal until our work on earth is finished. Looking at verse 16 and 17, think about this. We, we don't have to hold anything back because the same God whose power fashions you together, he knows exactly your last day. He knows exactly the moment of your last breath. And until you fulfill all the divine purpose that he created you for, then nothing shall prevail against you. You, you, you see that, yes, there are discouraging days. There are moments that are struggles. Yes, there are moments where we, we scratch our head and wonder if we're in the right spot. Yes, there are days where we wake up and we got to force ourselves out of bed to, to pursue what God created us for. I've got the greatest job in the world. There, there's still days I've got to wake up and I'd rather hold the pillow. And so we see all of this, this idea that we were made by God's power, not only just fashioned together, but that our days were literally spelled out and that nothing shall prevail against us. Not, not darkness, not principalities, not powers, not the rulers of the darkness shall prevail against us until our purpose is fulfilled. So we see verse 18 of Psalms 139. says, If I would count them, they are more than the sands of the sea. I awake and I am still with you. He's talking about God's thoughts in verse 17. The reason that God did this was not just, oh, let me just, I need a hobby to create people and, you know, plug them into play. It's because his thoughts for you, not us collectively, but for you, were more than the sands of the sea. Like, you and I can't count like a one square foot square of sand at Orange Beach. And David's saying God's thoughts towards you are more than the sands of the sea. 
was out of compassion, out of love, out of mercy and grace that he wove us together and put us into place. The great hymn by Frederick Lehman, The Love of God. I'm going to read a few statements for you from that hymn. It says, Could we, with the ink ocean feel, and were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though they stretch from sky to sky. Oh, the love of God, that he would take his wisdom and knowledge, that he would take his presence and that he would take his power, and he would form them into the object of his affection, and he would pour them into us and say, God, I've created you because I want you and I love you, and I will pursue you. So David's writing this. The first three stanzas are, are all about the greatness and the glory and the majesty of God. And then we see this, this fourth stanza kind of, kind of paired together. Psalms 139, verse 19, it says, Oh, that you would slay the wicked. Oh, God, oh, men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with a contemplative hatred, a complete hatred. I count them my enemies. All of a sudden, like, we've completely changed tones here. David was, was describing, he's singing God's praises. And then all of a sudden, he looks around and he's like, oh, slay all the wicked people. He goes, make them depart. They speak against you. Your enemies take your name in vain. I hate them. You know, what, what in the world? We, we, we know in Romans 12 verse 9 that love must be sincere to hate what is evil, to cling to what is good. But David takes this to another level. He says, wipe them out, all these evil people. Hey, you're, you're too good and you're too great. Just clean the, the slate. He's, he's describing all the wickedness that is in the world, the, the people who have taken God's name in vain. You, you think about that in our context. Like We can have two, two systems of thinking today. Some believe that, uh, that evil just does not exist. Like uh, we, we call that modern liberalism, that you could just kind of do whatever, whatever's right for you. But then we, the modern conservatives, most of us in this room would say this, is that we deny the existence of evil in us. And David, right here, you, you got to get this. You can't separate the last two verses from these. David, he's worshiping the Lord and he's describing how wonderful and how powerful and how wise he is and how good he is. He comes from this worship moment and he begins to look around and he's beginning to say, man, these people are so wicked. God, they don't deserve your love. They don't deserve to know you. They shouldn't deserve your grace. Just wipe them out. And then you look at the very last two verses. You see that David, all of a sudden, he, he changes tones again. He goes, my view of others, my view of myself. In verse 23 and 24, he says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there's any grievous way in me. And lead me in the everlasting. In the middle of David kind of coming off this worship moment. Where he's describing how good God is. He looks down. He says, 
all these wicked people. Take them out. I hate them. They're my enemies. We, and we talk about we, you know, uh, hate. Most of us grew up in houses where hate was a strong word, but, but biblical Romans chapter 12, verse 9, we, we hate sin. We pray that God would give us a holy hatred for sin. But we also know that, that the love of God is too great for us to, to hate a person because of their sin. And so David all of a sudden wiped these people out, and then he goes, Oh God. Search me and know me. See if there's any grievous way. See if my conduct, if there's anything that would cause anyone to be shocked or angered or sinful. And lead me in the everlasting way. Because David is admitting those wicked people. That was I. It is, it is this movement. You watch him go in this train of thought of He's worshiping how great God is. Then all of a sudden, he sees how great God is. Then, then all these people are wicked. They're foolish. They're sinning. How could this be? And then all of a sudden, he goes, wait, that was me. And he walks to God, and he utters this prayer in the middle of this psalm. God, search me. Know me. Try me. Don't just, don't just glance over me. Put me through the test. Put me through the fire. Because I don't want anything in me that would be reflective of wickedness and sin. And he says, lead me in the everlasting way. You see this progression here. That our worship will always lead to us hating sin. It, uh, true worship, when you encounter the Lord, if you, if you are not convicted of the own sin, the sin in your own heart, then you haven't worshipped. If you've not been reminded of your smallness and God's greatness, then you haven't worshipped. We see that we, we worship the Lord. David begins to look at how, how awful sin is. How he despises it. And then he goes, oh God, please don't let there be any sin in me. It was not a, a to-do list to say, okay, I've read the Bible. I've been to church this week. I haven't, I haven't talked bad. I haven't gossiped this week. You know, I, I didn't waste my money on anything this week. It wasn't a checklist for David. It was a matter of a pure and a holy heart. It was not one of these things where he said, man, I, I just hope that there's nothing wrong with me. It was God Look at every part of me. Pull back every sheet, every comforter. Walk into every closet. Put me through the test. And lead me in the everlasting way. I want purity and holiness in my own heart more than anything else. Because as I worship you, that is the only response for me to pursue you. And to ask you to work and mold and shape me. We look at kind of this reckoning of, okay, I see that. Then why does God allow sin? And why does God allow wickedness? Why doesn't he just wipe them out? Why doesn't he just, the moment you make a big mistake, he just strike you dead? Uh, Joni Erickson Tata, phenomenal lady. She was diving an accident um, some 50 years ago. She's paraplegic. Um, she makes this statement. It's 10 words that she said wrecked her life. Was that God permits what He hates to pursue what He loves? I mean, 
let that just wrap around your mind this morning. That God allows sin and he allows, he permits tough things to happen to pursue what he loves. And we, what, what David is declaring here, of God was not just great in his wisdom and his strength and his presence, but that he took all of that and put it into a passion, passionate pursuit for you. Like, this is not one of these things, man, maybe God loves me or maybe he doesn't. This was God put everything that he had ever created and everything he intended behind a passionate pursuit to win your heart so that you can know him, so that he can lead you in the everlasting and there is, no, there is no checklist. There is no to-do list. It's just, God, this is who you are. You are the Savior of the world. And I give my life. I, I just lay it down. Whatever you need to do, search me out. Whatever needs to change, wherever I need to go, whatever you're calling me to do, whatever I have to give up, whatever I need to sacrifice, whatever it takes, I just want to know you. I want to walk with you. As David unpacks this, this morning, it's, it's not a, man, this is how you walk through a tough week. This is how you live the rest of your life on a journey, asking God to say, God, you be great. Let me be small. And lead me in the everlasting way. Just a few moments. Uh, we, we only get about an hour together every, every week. And we believe we have a responsibility when we hear the word of God, not just to sit and take notes and say, man, that was good, and go off to lunch. But we have a responsibility to act upon the word of God, living and active. So you have a decision this morning. Whether you walked in prepared to make a decision or not, you have a decision this morning. And that decision is this. I can either pat myself on the back, say, man, that was a, we went to church today, we did a good job, and let's go about our week. I'll come back next Sunday, maybe. Or you can say, you know what? I want to be led in the everlasting way. Whatever that takes, Lord. You know everything about me. I'm not going to hide something from you. I'm not going to tell you something you already don't know. You fashioned me together all of my days. Every part of me. The color of my hair. The color of my eyes. The, uh, the tone of my voice. You put all of that together. I cannot hide from you. And so I'm coming just to say, Lord, whatever it takes, I, I want to follow. That's you. That, that literally is, whether you're a father of Christ or you've, you've never, never really given any thought to that. But this morning, that, those are the one or two decisions. Either we, we just daily surrender and say, Lord, whatever it takes to follow you today, I want to follow you. Or we just go about living our lives and just keep the same old, same old. And live with the reality that apart from Jesus, this broken and lost and messy world will never make sense. So I'm going to pray for us. When I'm done praying for us, uh, the band's going to come up. And we're going to sing songs. And as we sing, man, uh, we, we kind of call this our, our altar space. You, you can come get on the altar, respond, make a decision, say, God, whatever it takes. Uh, there's a big banner in the back that says next steps. There's people there that say, hey, I want to talk to somebody. I want somebody to pray with me. But we must respond to the word of God together. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that this morning you are 
infinitely wise. Father, that your power is so intimate. Father, that we are the object of your affection. That, Father, you wanted to hold nothing back in pursuit of us. Jesus, I pray that in these moments that we would be reminded of how great you are and how little we are. And yet, you want us. Father, give us the courage to respond. I pray that you would settle our hearts and our minds, knowing that in, in the next few moments, uh, we'd be dis easily distracted, knowing that it'd be easy just to watch the clock. But God, we need you. We need to surrender our hearts. We need you to work in us. So Lord, we, we ask you to do that. We invite you to do that. Lord, we want you to move in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.